How difficult is it for you to finish what you start? For most of us, that can be a challenge. Our God, however, always finishes what He starts and fulfills what He promises He will do. Hi, I'm Yvonne Pran with Bible 805, where you learn to know, trust, and apply the Bible. In today's lesson, we'll look not only at what God did, but the difference between how He fulfills His promises to us today from how He did it for people in the Old Testament. I think you'll find it a really interesting lesson. Now, there's a lot of history, a lot of things to cover, but our lesson today is entitled, Haggai and Zechariah, Finish What You Start. God always does. Here's where we are in our journey through the Bible. We're nearing the end of our study of the Old Testament. We have three prophets to go, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. They spoke during the historical books of Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. In closing, though, after this historical part is over, you I want you to read the books of First and Second Chronicles. That's what I have in the reading plan I gave you. And the reason I'm having you read that is because it is a review of biblical history from Adam to the re- return from the exile. And it stops just before these final books. Now, this is another example of why it's so important to read your Bible in chronological historical order, not just the order they are in your Bibles, because in most Bibles, they're placed after First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings. And most people look at them as just sort of a rehashing of the previous history, which it really isn't at all. These books were the last ones written during Old Testament times. Hebrew tradition tells us they're written by Ezra, and I believe that's correct. He was the high priest who returned to Israel after their exile in Babylon, and he wants the people to know their history. I redid the timeline that I gave you last week and placed Chronicles in it. He wrote it, we assume, after his second re- after the second return to the land. The first one was under Zerubbabel, then Ezra took a group of people back there, and sometime after that is when he wrote Chronicles. So th- this timeline is available for you on the Bible 805 website. But here's what makes Chronicles a little different than the other books of history. First of all, it was originally just one book, and it emphasizes very different things than most other biblical books. First of all, there there's a lot of lists of people, and some, some when they're reading them, think, oh, that's kind of boring. But it isn't. It's a reminder of how important people are in history, not just big events, but people matter to God, individual people. There's primarily an emphasis on Judah, the southern kingdom, after Israel split in two. This is the kingdom, this is the part of the kingdom of of Israel that carried on God's plan. And so Ezra emphasizes them. There's also an emphasis on the temple, on worshiping God, because this is what is so important for us and on the preparations for it. We see this really clearly in how he talks about David's life. He doesn't even mention his sin with Bathsheba. And he instead talks about all of the work that he did preparing for the temple. An application here is that you can never sin beyond God's ability to forgive and use you in great ways if you return to him and allow him to do that. That's what's remembered. That is what can make 
a lasting heritage for you. Yet they're more than simply history. Chronicles reminds the people that as a group and as individuals, God never lost track of anyone. His care and his plans continued through all their various trials. He brought them safely through them all and is returning them at last to their home. Application of this to all of us is the reminder that God never loses track of any of us and that through everything, all that we experience, the good and the bad, the challenging and the hopeful, he will bring us safely home to himself forever. Now back to the last three prophets. I'm also giving you in the handouts a copy of the chart that I did on all of the prophets that go through the Old Testament. And I made just a little slight change on this chart where under Malachi, I did change the date of it. I made it a little bit earlier after I did uh, more study. It doesn't matter that much. There was only a 30-year difference, and it, he really could have written any time. But I think after reading it and studying it more, he probably wrote closer to or probably during the time that Nehemiah was actually leading the land. And so you have all of the different prophets, and you can just look at this chart. You can see the ones that prophesied before Israel went into captivity, before Judah did, during the captivity, and after. Keep in mind, God always has his messengers with lessons appropriate to their times. I believe very strongly in the traditional dating of the prophets that most of them wrote either during or shortly after or before the events that they prophesied. Many uh, modern writings and modern scholarship, quote unquote, will talk, will sort of group all of them to writing uh, just before the New Testament was written. And outside of the absolutely really crazy fact is that when you look at it and you think, well, how could all these guys who were, by the way, totally anonymous, none of them were ever named, um, they anonymously all wrote just all bunched up at a time and nobody knows who they were and, you know, all this kind of stuff. But German scholarship and some of these others in the 1800s decided that this is how it has to be, you know, that is just patently not good theory. And I choose to always go with what did the traditional Jewish scholars believe about them. And they all believed that these things were written when the prophets said they were written close to the time that the events took place. So, um, just really, really important for. Now, here's the setting of Haggai and Zechariah. It was written about 14 to 16 years after the Jews first went back to the land after their captivity, and it was just a glorious work that God allowed them to do that. But there were challenges when the surrounding people tried to stop them, but God intervened in that also. God took care of that situation. They got permission from the king to continue building, but... <laughs> They didn't follow up on it. He sent then two prophets to them, Haggai and Zechariah, who preach at the same time, but they were really different. Haggai is very practical and about what to do now. Zechariah, as many prophets do, jumps from the world into the mind of God, and he challenges the people from his viewpoint with dreams and visions from the view of eternity. We're going to look at each one of the prophets in more detail now in this lesson. Now, first Haggai, he challenges the people as to why did the work stop? 
The people didn't tell themselves they were quitting uh, the work on the temple or that they were afraid to do the work. This is what they said. These people say, "Um, the time has not yet come to rebuild the Lord's house. But they had time for other things. And Haggai challenges them about that when he says, Is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses while this house remains a ruin? In modern day parlance, instead of doing the stuff they're supposed to do around the church, they were watching HGTV, you know, the home HDT, whatever. Anyway, the home decorating channel, which I do admit I love, but we can't let that take the place of what we ought to be doing for the Lord. And here was their excuse, not yet time to do the Lord's work. That's a common and a dangerous excuse throughout Bible times and for us also. Now, it doesn't seem like outright rebellion. We deceive ourselves into thinking, well, well, we're going to obey it It just sometime. Some other examples of this in the New Testament, Felix, the governor, when he was confronted by the Apostle Paul and challenged to think about Jesus, to think about changing his life, to becoming a Christian, he didn't outright reject it. He just said, um, I'll send for you when, I'm, when it's a more convenient season. In other words, we'll just talk about it later. We don't know if he ever did or not. And then St. Augustine, his famous prayer, Lord, make me chaste, just not now. In other words, you know, I, I, I want to quit sinning sexually, but, but, but not now. <laughs> let, me, let me keep doing that for a little while. We often don't want to flagrantly disobey God or tell him that we have no intention of not doing something we know he wants us to do in a habit, a ministry, whatever it is. So we lie to ourselves and to God that the timing just isn't right. I'll do it. I'll obey. Whatever. Just not now. Haggai wouldn't have any of it. And here's what he says to them. Look at what's happening to you. You've planted much, but harvest little. You eat, but are not satisfied. You drink, but are still thirsty. You put on clothes, but cannot keep warm. Your wages disappear as though you were putting them in pockets filled with holes. His words were not just an idle observation on their present circumstances. They were a reminder of precisely the things that God said would happen if they did not follow through on obeying his covenant. God previously told them, and Haggai was repeating it when he reminded them that in Deuteronomy 28, it prophesied that exactly the same sorts of things would happen if they didn't obey God. And here's what it says in Deuteronomy 28. You will sow much, but reap little. For the locusts will eat your crops. You will plant vineyards and care for them, but you won't eat the grapes or drink the wine, for worms will destroy the vines. Olive trees will be growing everywhere, but there won't be enough olive oil to anoint yourselves, for the trees will drop their fruit before it is matured. Remember, God always keeps his word. He does it in the good promises, but he also does it for the consequences if people don't obey him. The problem is clarified. The challenge given, what now? We need motivation to actually get going and doing what we should. Sometimes that involves more than simply a factual listing of what we've done wrong. 
This is where Zechariah comes in, Haggai's partner in ministry. Now, we haven't really seen this before, where two prophets are actually preaching together. Um, we've seen sometimes where one was in one um, nation, one in another, uh, separated by a certain period of time, things like that, but not two partners, and, and they actually were, and they preached together. One is very practical. The other speaks in images. And let's and the one I'm talking about is Zachariah. Let's talk about this method first before we get into his content. Now, about the use of images. Sometimes it takes more than simply words to communicate. A picture is worth a thousand words is often quoted. But when I hear that, I often say, but which thousand? You see, we need words to clarify the meaning of images. But often, it takes images to inspire our words. That's why this combination is what makes the pairing of Haggai and Zechariah so powerful, where we have the words and the images. Haggai's concrete words were based on the prior covenant with God. Now, what, though, are Zechariah's images all about? Well, first, and this is really important, they come from the eternal view of God who sees our past, present, and future. They needed, and we need to put ourselves in our eternal destiny. We need to kind of zoom out and see all of that to sometimes have the strength or the courage to do what needs to be done and to communicate that information, that eternal, literally view not of this world. Sometimes images are the best way to do it. The Bible does this a lot, reminding us that this present time is not all there is. Here was a great quote that kind of summarized, I found this and, and I just wanted to put it in the lesson, that summarizes this shift in perspective. A gentleman named William Orr said it where he said, life is not concerned with time alone. There is an overruling power which works in time to prepare for eternity. Now, what does that mean? What is it, um, you know, how does it actually have to do with us? Who knows? <laughs> but I think it's important for us to keep that in mind. Now, here's why images communicate this viewpoint and why they work so well. An image can contain volumes of backstory and meaning that, um, you know, in just a few uh, words, you know, describing an image, whatever. The challenge is that you need to understand the meaning of the image. Example, if you want to describe the perfect superhero, a sterling example of strength, integrity, leadership, self-giving, you could list all these characteristics in minute detail, or you could simply say Captain America, and then you know exactly what we're talking about. The books of the Old Testament, and Zechariah is one of the main ones that does this, use imagery in much the same way. The challenge is for modern readers, is we don't know the backstory of the imagery. For us, visions of myrtle trees, golden lampstands, flying scroll, <laughs> they make about as much sense to us as Captain America, Thor, and Spider-Man would make to the Old Testament Jews. Now, how do we learn that commentary? We get it 
two ways, by becoming more familiar with the Bible itself and through commentaries. And I have some listed, I have a a good commentary of notes listed for you in the notes that go along with this lesson. But let me just give you from one commentary an overview on Zechariah that'll help. This is by um, John MacArthur in his introduction to the book, where he says, this book is the most messianic, apocalyptic, and eschatological in the Old Testament. Primarily, it is a prophecy about Jesus Christ focusing on his coming glory as a means to comfort Israel. While the book is filled with visions, prophecies, signs, and celestial visitors, and the voice of God, it is also practical, dealing with issues like repentance, divine care, salvation, and holy living. Prophecy was soon to be silent for more than 400 years until John the Baptist. So God used Zechariah to bring a rich, abundant outburst of promise for the future to sustain the faithful remnant through those silent years. The images, the visions in the book of Zechariah, we're not going to go into them in detail, but they put the practical words of Haggai into the larger plan of God. First of all, he has He's given eight visions while they're building the temple. And these are a series of primarily nighttime visions. And it uh, he includes the coronation of Joshua, the high priest, in order to encourage the nation that God is not finished with them. God still has plans for them. He'll fight for them. He'll bless them. He'll take away their sins and enable them to build the temple, to bring true worship and to unite them if they repent and obey. Then after the temple's built, he has prophecies concerning the Messiah, both his first and second coming. Please see the handout with your uh, the page, the quotation from God Questions for a brief summary of each of the meanings of the overall visions. But here's the important point. On all apocalyptic and all end times visions, they do give us a future and a hope. That's what they're designed for. They're an eternal context that we live in, even though we can't see it or understand it, of comfort and strength for what might be difficult now. But the future is not yet. And, and this is really important because a lot of people get all caught up in prophecy and date setting. And, you know, the Bible tells us you don't do that and you can't figure out the times anyway, but that's not to be our sole focus. There is work to be done right now. Our work has a purpose, but as we work towards it, we must do very tangible things. And to do those things in the light of their eternal calling is what they were supposed to do. From the national to the personal, the primary thing was for them to all get to work. To the people as a whole, in Haggai he said, Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord, and work, for I am with you. This is what I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt, and my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. And then there's this wonderful, wonderful promise to one particular person. This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Now Zerubbabel would have been, should have been king. He was in the line of David. He was the leader when they came back to the land. But somehow or other, 
along with everybody else. He got distracted and he didn't do anything for at least probably 15 years. And then here's what God says to him. He doesn't beat him up. He doesn't say, well, you are no good. So, you know, I'm not going to use you anymore. He just goes, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. Then the word of the Lord came to me. He's talking to Haggai, and he passed on this message. The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this temple. His hands will also complete it. Then you will know that the Lord Almighty has sent me to you, who dares despise the day of small things. I just love that passage. Just the incredible encouragement and kindness of God to say to this man who just kind of been sitting around and we don't know what he was doing, we can be sure he was tormented. He knew he hadn't fulfilled all he was supposed to do. And God says to him, the hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation. His hands will also complete it. We might be like him. We might feel that we're too old, too tired, too overwhelmed. But if God calls us to do something, no matter if we are all these things, God can help us finish it. To repeat, the hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of the temple. His hands will also complete it. Then you will know the Lord Almighty has sent me to you, who dares despise the day of small things. You see, nothing is small if God is energizing it. You're not little if God called you to do something. What an incredible promise it was, and it came true. Don't give up on the dreams you have for God. Don't have some sort of selfish bucket list that you want to accomplish before you die. I just hate those things, just so self-absorbed and all this money and all that. Instead, have what I'd call a God bucket list. What do you want to yet accomplish for your God? What dreams do you have? What can you do? Now let's go back to the people. Practical applications for all of them. They then had a question about religious observance. I, I kind of think they were stalling, but that's just me. Anyway, in chapter 7, they come to uh, to uh, Zechariah and say, well, we have a question about fasting. Should we mourn and fast in the fifth month as we have done for so many years? Then the word of the Lord Almighty came to me and he said, ask the people of the land and the priest, when you fasted and mourned in the fifth and seventh months for the past 70 years, was it really for me that you fasted? And when you were eating and drinking, were you not just feasting for yourselves? Very important application here. Evaluate your motive for any religious action. God was not pleased with theirs. Religious actions without doing what they were supposed to do is not what pleases God. Then he goes on to tell them what they are supposed to do, not just fasting or denying yourself and acting like you're all this spiritual person. He says, now here's what I want you to do. Tell the truth, the whole truth when you speak. Do the right thing by one another, both personally and in your courts. Don't cook up plans to take unfair advantage of others. Don't do or say what isn't so. I hate all that stuff. Keep your lives simple and honest. Oh, there is so much here and so much I think that we need to take seriously. And it's repeated, actually, in the New Testament, that especially that don't tell, I mean, tell the truth. Don't lie. God hates that. In Ephesians 4.25, he says, stop lying to each other. Tell the truth. 
for we're parts of each other. And when we lie to each other, we're hurting ourselves. Don't use bad language. Say only what is good and helpful to those you are talking to and what will give them a blessing. What we say is a big reflection of who we belong to. And we need to be consistent in our words. And they got to work. Some did a complaining that it wasn't as great as the old temple. But Haggai told them its glory would be even greater because it was the temple that Jesus would come to. A quick application here. Our standards of greatness are not often, our, excuse me, our standards of greatness are often not the same as the Lord's. It is an outward appearance that's important. But who is there? Is Jesus there or isn't he? That's what makes a place glorious and wonderful and special. Now, this is really important. I wanted to do this before I leave these books, and that is, I need for you to understand the overall application um, for how we should apply what's in these books and biblical interpretation overall. This is really, really important. And that is, we can look at this book. Let me kind of give you an example of incorrect application first and then tell you how to correct it. And we look at these books, we see what they have to say, and we could kind of think, well, if things aren't going well for me, maybe if we just do a little work around the church, that'll mean everything will get better. Um, and because, like these books show, if we work hard for God, shouldn't we be protected from difficulties and loss? That's what these books kind of seem to teach. Now, does God punish us here and now if we don't do what he wants? So if I'm having problems, do I just, again, need to go work at the church? Does God bless us with goodies if we shape up and all that? Now, many teach that's the case. The health and wealth preachers invariably quote, and this is, this is a kind of a challenge to understand, but bear with me. The health and wealth preachers, they quote Old Testament passages out of context to prove that this is how things work. Now, we know, though, in practical experience, that isn't how they work. And we know in reading the New Testament, there's like all this big disconnect. But what is the reality of what we can expect in this and other apparent examples in the Old Testament? Now, here are some guidelines for you to use in determining what is true and applicable for all time as you read the Bible. First, we need to look at what is called the whole counsel of God before we get into specific, specific applications. This means we need to be clear about what the whole Bible teaches in various areas. Now, it takes time, it takes work, it takes study to develop that. Much easier to just pull out bits and pieces during a devotional time, but that will not give you a correct view of what the Bible teaches. We need to look at the Bible overall for principles, not just proof text out of their historical context. Now, the overall principle of these books, the overwhelming lesson of the entire Bible is that God and doing his will is what is supposed to be the priority of our lives, regardless of the specific earthly result. I mean, look at how different it was for Daniel, Jeremiah, Zerubbabel. Daniel was taken from his land, but he was put in a place of honor and most likely great comfort, And but he was still in exile. Jeremiah stayed with his people, but he lived a 
miserable life. Zerubbabel gets to go back to the land. You know, very, very different, but all of them were following God. Many commentators have said that these books are the Old Testament illustration of Matthew 6.33, where it says, Seek the kingdom of God above all else, and live righteously, and he will give you everything you need. They are as that is the consistent message through the Bible. Now, here are some other passages throughout the Bible on making God our priority. In Proverbs 3, 5 and 6, an Old Testament book, it says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lead not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. In Matthew 22, 37 through 40, it says, and he said to them, and this he's repeating an Old Testament passage, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. And then another New Testament passage. And what Whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Now, with God as our priority, he affirms and rewards that practice somewhat differently in the Old and, and New Testaments. And this, this is where it gets tricky. Now, first, here's some Old Testament observations. It was very clearly stated in Deuteronomy, again, we go back to those initial promises, that if the people would do certain things, he would bless them. And if they don't, they'll suffer the consequences. There was a direct, tangible correlation between when the people of God obeyed him and his direct response. When they obeyed, they were blessed in this life for the nation overall. When they disobeyed, he disciplined them, which primarily meant a loss of material blessings and ultimately they were removed from the land. We've seen all of this throughout these months that we've been studying the Old Testament, but it isn't like that today. We don't have specific promises that apply directly in this life. They were under the old covenant, the old rules, the Old Testament. We're under the new covenant. We live under the teachings of the New Testament. Now, there are many things that cover all of them. Again, we are to put God first. Our salvation is always by grace alone, through faith alone. But then specifically how we are to live our lives and what the immediate consequences are, are different. How we're shown and how it's shown that we're pleasing to God also is really, really different. We can't count on earthly blessings today if we follow God. Jesus himself promised in this world, you will have tribulation. He didn't say good, bad, in between with you follow. He said, you're going to have tribulation. And in Matthew 5.11, he said, blessed are you if men revile, persecute, and say evil against you. That 
can be a blessing. And then the Apostle Paul, one of the most godly, productive, self-sacrificing, successful missionaries in the entire history of humanity who wrote a large portion of our Bibles. Here is what he got for serving God. He says, I've worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, danger from bandits, danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger from the city, in danger in the country, in danger danger at sea, in danger from false believers. I've labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I've known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I've been cold and naked. Besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. And remember, Jesus himself was a homeless preacher, and he died a criminal's death. And though the promises aren't always for now, The challenges that we have are in many ways even harder than theirs because God demands of us inner as well as outer holiness. Remember in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says numerous times, you've heard it said, but I say to you concerning lust and anger and all of that. And he's saying, you know, it isn't just what you do on the outside. He set a higher standard and it was all really summarized in the statement in John 13 where he says, by this, everyone will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. Love defined by Jesus, not just current emotional standards, but shown by serving as Jesus did. He lived a life of service and at the end, when he knew he was going to die, he washed the disciples' feet. That servant leadership Serving those we love, it's not a suggestion, but a key evidence that we belong to Jesus. We'll see the details of what this means as we study the New Testament in upcoming lessons. And I just pray that you'll all be there, invite friends. It's going to be a wonderful series. One of the clearest examples, though, of what matters to Jesus, literally at the end of all things, he summarizes in Matthew 25 in what's called the parable of the sheep and the goats. Let me just summarize that for you. At the end of time, Jesus doesn't separate people depending upon what their theological stance was and what they believed about this and whether they were pre-trib or post-trib or whether they were, you know, he doesn't care what denomination you belong to or any of that. He separates them and he says to one group of people, I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. And he welcomes those who did that into his kingdom. And then he turns to those who didn't care about others. And he says, I was hungry and you didn't care. And this is such an incredibly powerful passage. What really matters isn't always obvious, but one day it will be. After Jesus commending people for the little things he said, then the righteous will answer him and say, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you, a stranger, and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you, 
sick or in prison and go to visit you? And the king will reply, truly, I tell you, whatever you did for the least of one of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did it for me. Care for those in prison, the hungry, the aliens, the strangers, those in need, in addition to telling the truth, suffering without complaining, and the many things the Bible challenges us to do. And we're going to, again, be studying more in the lessons of the New Testament. Doing these things are essential characteristics of those who belong to Jesus. We may or may not be rewarded now for these acts of kindness done in faith, but we will be, and it will be glorious. That's all for now. Please check out the notes, charts, and other material from this lesson. They're all in downloadable PDF format on Bible805.com. Until next time, I'm Yvonne Prynne, your fellow pilgrim, writer, and teacher for Jesus. And I'd like to close with this benediction. May you know the invitation of God to move from confusion to clarity, from wandering to rest, from loneliness to knowing you are loved, from turmoil to peace, from wherever you are on your spiritual journey to a growing knowledge of God's Word and in your personal relationship with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.